Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK centric on the big issues of the day. Well, Peter, good morning. It's a month since we last had a conversation about what's going on in the world. And uh, it's fair to say, I think that it remains a very troubled and difficult world to analyse, particularly for those involved in the financial markets. But I guess we should kick off by talking first about the progress of the war in Ukraine and whether that influence on financial markets is uh, waning or about the same or getting worse. Good morning, Jonathan, and it's very nice to be back online. I like that question that you've just posed. Is the influence of the war on financial markets waning? Because I think that's a spot-on question, and you could be forgiven to conclude that it is waning. We all know that wars in themselves, as terribly depressing and destructive as they are, Uh, But it's not the destructive effects of wars in themselves that influence financial markets, bombed buildings, casualties. It's not so much that. It's just that wars have traditionally tended to stoke inflation. And in this particular case, even though inflation was creeping up or more than creeping up last year, it accelerated vehemently this year for all the reasons that we know the Russians and the Ukrainians are big, big exporters of raw materials, and these have all been blocked. I think that the effect of the war is beginning to wane on financial markets, and we can dig deeper into how and why. But the short answer is, it's a sad answer, because the markets are no longer looking every second at what's going on in Ukraine. But meanwhile, down on the ground, it's absolutely horrible what is going on. Yes, I guess it's, the war has been through a couple of phases now. We had the initial Russian attack, which was uh, very uh, dramatically and perhaps unexpectedly to some rebuffed by the Ukrainians with their uh, remarkable resilience and uh, tactical nous. Um, but now it's sort of deteriorated further into a bit of a long slog down in the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, where the Russians or Mr. Putin seems to be doubling down by throwing everything he's got left into this one area uh, and hoping, who knows what he's hoping to achieve. I think we've long passed the point where we can analyse what he's doing objectively. But obviously he's clearly uh, has in mind, I think, to uh, either to get to a negotiated settlement where he gains something or he's just going to drive on, you know, indefinitely. And uh, there's a limit to what the... uh, Ukrainians can do about that, I think, even with all the uh, military help they're getting now from NATO and developed countries. So it's going to be a kind of more of a slog, I think, for the time being, at least. And that, as you say, rather kind of changes the dynamics of the impact on the world. It doesn't change the impact on grain and uh, you know food prices and energy prices, because that remains, as you say, a very powerful factor, uh, which in turn has been overlaid on the issues of higher inflation that we already had before the war started. So, yeah, I think it's a complicated situation, is it not? So where do you think the market's preoccupations are at the moment? We can come back to this issue of the war, but where where are the market's preoccupations at the moment relative to where 
perhaps they were a month ago when we last spoke about this uh, very uh, difficult situation? I would say the market preoccupations have centered squarely on the prospects for interest rates and bond yields and obviously uh, inflation. And I think in as much as the markets are looking at that, I think investors need to be looking at that uh, inflation picture as well um, and forming a view as to whether, like practically everybody is saying, we are in a new era and um, the past eras of disinflation stroke deflation are a thing of the past. And now the buzzword is deglobalization. And that's something we should talk about a little bit. And if deglobalization happens, then the just-in-time economic model will be replaced by the what they called just-in-case economic model of having high inventories and what have you. And I think that, in turn, makes the markets believe that last year and previous years were a different era and that we've got to forget what it was like in the last few years and we've got to concentrate on the tectonic shifts that are inevitably happening today and which will make every investor need to take a hard look at his portfolio again and position himself accordingly. Those are my conclusions from reading all sorts of reports and the various international press and so on. You're very much near a consensus of opinion. You've probably already reached a consensus of opinion. So the second question is, have we reached capitulation yet or not? You know exactly what I mean, and I'm sure you've got a, a very well-founded view on whether we have reached capitulation or not. But that, I think, is the big question at the moment. What do you think? By which we mean that it, when you're in a market which is falling quite uh, dramatically and uh, potentially quite a long way, whether or not we've reached the point where investors have so become so uh, gloomy, if you like, that they've overpriced the bad news effectively. And therefore, it's often quite a good moment for them to come back into the market because you know investors are being too gloomy relative to the actual reality of what might happen from here. And what has happened to the uh, the prices of the things that they're potentially able to buy, which have become a lot cheaper, obviously. Well, we can talk about that in, in a number of parts, I guess. I mean, we can look at the stock market, first of all, where I think last Friday, we're recording this on uh, May the 25th, uh, but last Friday, we had a point where the S&P 500, the main US equity market index, actually fell by 20%, which is the normal uh, trigger by which uh, market commentators say we're into a into a bear market. But it only passed that level for, I think, about two hours before the equity market rallied again. So that's one subject, the equity market. And secondly, we can look at the bond market and we can see that with bond yields have been rising pretty steadily, particularly uh, you know right across the curve. But um, uh, there was a point with the 10-year, the US 10-year treasury, which actually seems to have met some support, if you like, around the 3% level. In other words, it went over 3%, but that brought some buyers back in and it's now a little bit below 3%. So that seems to be some kind of indicator that maybe at least there's a pause in bond yields. So both those things would suggest that maybe for the moment we've reached a kind of mild reset. But the question that remains is whether we're actually going to go back into a downtrend in in both those markets or whether we've actually arrived at a turning point. 
Personally, I, just before I, I asked you your opinion, Peter, though, personally, I don't think we've reached a point of capitulation yet. I think we have reached, if you like, a, a point of uh, resistance, what technical analysts call that. I think we've met us a little plateau. We might see a bounce. But personally, I would be uh, of the view that the stock market has further to fall. Uh, but I'd be more neutral about the uh, outlook for bonds. I don't know how your uh, thinking goes in that those two markets. Well, when we spoke about this a month ago, your outlook was absolutely spot on. You were more negative than I was, and you were right. But just to touch on what you said about bear markets, yes, the if you take the S&P, for example, as a whole, yes, it was in a bear market territory for about five minutes, I agree. But if you look at the components, if you do more of a deep dive, you will see that cyclical companies versus uh, long-duration quality growth businesses fared better in the sense that a portfolio of cyclical businesses did not reach the bear market level, but a portfolio of quality growth businesses like we have them went far beyond a bear market the proverbial 20%, far beyond that. And one needs to look at what the reasons are. And the reasons are closely aligned to the second questions that you're posing with regard to bond markets and how the bond investors, certainly over the last two years, have been hammered to an extent which one hadn't seen for decades before. So you've got the former question about bear market or not bear market, which is under the heading of evaluation. And the latter question of bond markets and where they're going is a question of liquidity, which is extremely important and which we also discussed at our last conversation a month ago. And you cannot separate the outlook for bond yields with the outlook for the external value of the US dollar, because that's an extremely important thermometer for world liquidity. And I would say, and then we can disentangle these various arguments, but I would say at this point that being the eternal optimist, I am actually cautiously optimistic about the prospects for the liquidity squeeze, the international liquidity squeeze, which we've suffered from all over the world, emerging markets, some of them much more than others. Because if this liquidity squeeze is starting to be alleviated now, and if you think back, Jonathan, you remember very well the the Plaza Agreement in 1985, where they wanted to get the dollar down. We had a similar situation to today. The dollar was much too strong. And then two years later, the dollar had collapsed. And so they wanted to change that and reverse course. And they had the Louvre Agreement. But of course, that was way before the single currency and the central banks could get together and decide that sort of thing and which now they can't. But my point is that the dollar has got to come down. And when the dollar has to come down, it eventually does come down. So if you have a falling dollar and no longer rising bond yields, you mentioned the 10-year bond yield quite rightly, then that is a silver lining. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't disagree with that. Absolutely right. But I guess the issue then is You've still got to think about what the impact of that. We we know that uh, you know money supply is contracting now. It's not uh, growing very rapidly as it was before. That's been one of the issues. The dollar, as you say, has been very strong, and that is that is an issue. 
Uh, and while I, indeed I remember 1985 as, as if it was yesterday, Peter, you know, it was only so many years ago. Uh, I mean, it did produce um, some remarkable movements in, in markets as well, that uh, change in direction. So it is true that also I think it's fair to say that the, uh, you know, the, the markets have reacted to everything that's been going on uh, in quite a notable way. They've been absorbing the messages from the Federal Reserve and other central banks uh, and seem to be assigning them some credibility. And inflation expectations have steadied a little bit, looking at market measures of that. But that still leaves a question of what are these all these things telling us about what is going to happen to the global economy? We've already mentioned deglobalization as a, as a trend. We haven't mentioned so far the Chinese continuing with their anti-zero uh, you know, COVID policy, which is having a uh, impact on uh, you know supply of manufactured goods and so on, and the risk surely is faced with this high inflation. And even if liquidity is easing a little bit, uh, that we are now facing the risk of a recession. And if that is the case, that is going to have still have a further negative impact, I would argue, on the equity markets, but not, of course, on the bond markets. So. There may be now a point where there's some sort of divergence between those two markets. What do you think? Are you afraid of, or what? Tell me more. What are your the companies who you invest in? What are they saying about the outlook for economic growth and demand for their goods that they are or goods and services that they are selling? I like that question because it goes straight to the heart of the matter. Um, in our case, the, the companies that we invest in are mostly operating in what we call the knowledge-based economy rather than the old-fashioned industrial-based economy. That has a relatively profound implications on things like supply chain issues and so on. So my expectation is that because the companies that we invest in have been so hammered in their share prices for all the wrong reasons, sooner or later that has to change. Why do I say for all the wrong reasons? Because these companies have, like all companies, produced ongoing quarterly results in the last couple of quarters. And there is really very, very little to indicate in those quarterly results that the world economy and the problems that we've got out there are impairing their potential for ongoing future steady and even superior growth. Quite on the contrary, in fact, Jonathan. The outlook for these companies that we invest in has improved compared with, let's say, the autumn of last year. And at the same time, as I said, their share prices have been hammered because the market throws them into the bucket of long duration assets. And if bond yields go up, then there's obviously going to be a mechanically negative effect on the discount rates that are used. That is an argument we don't need to address right now. But if the bond yields stop going up because the expected recession that you alluded to, then the hammering in these share prices will probably mean that they are interesting buying opportunities, which in my mind, although I don't give investment advice, but in my mind, they are very interesting. And I just want to add one thing, if I may, that the more solid the business has been that you invest in. In other words, the less indebted, the better the returns on invested capital, and so on, and all the things we've discussed in the past, the more punishment these companies have taken. If you compare them with businesses that have high debt, lower returns on invested capital, and lower price to book values, and so on, they have been less hammered 
in the expectation that the inflation rates of today are going to erode the real value of these companies' debt, more so than rising interest rates would affect negatively the outlook for their businesses, if that makes sense. And so the result does is, indeed, yeah. yeah. And so the result is that all those cyclical share prices have gone down, not into a bear market territory by and large. The share prices of quality growth businesses have gone way beyond bear market territory. And you suddenly find yourself in front of the question, does this mean that we've reached new crossroads where the counter rotation will replace the rotation that we've seen? Indeed, the counter-rotation is, I like the sound of that. I think that what we might say, though, Peter, is that uh, you know maybe what we're just seeing is a bit of a correction to what was, I think even you acknowledged, the fact that many of these businesses, these uh, quality growth businesses, and indeed, even more so, the tech companies that are also regarded as long-duration assets, it was just overdone last year in the in the last two years as a consequence of the kind of reverse of what we're seeing now, where we had this massive monetary and fiscal stimulus combined. It now looks very unwise policy move. And that just drove these valuations to ludicrously high levels, including that of very good businesses. So, you know, maybe we're just seeing a return to some more normal level of valuations. And then, of course, over time, the quality of the kind of businesses you invest in will, of course, begin to count and to weigh more heavily in their favour. But it's been more of a kind of, uh, uh, as you say, a partly knee-jerk, but partly also, I think, logical move to reprice things that had become very expensive before. In that sense, of course, our conversations of last year, during those conversations, you were quite right, because you were alerting us to this possibility And although we had the same discussions two years ago, but of course, two years ago, the world was a completely different place. You had oil at zero. Today, you have oil at 110. (laughs) Uh, You had a completely new phenomenon called COVID, which nobody had ever seen before. And today, everybody knows everything about. So it was different. But it's clear that the valuations had reached potentially proportions that were simply too high. But of course, as a long-term investor, what are you going to do in a situation like that? What are you going to do? First of all, if you manage institutional funds, there are rules in place and you can't go 90% in cash. But even if you could and you went 90% in cash with the intention of buying back the shares when they're, so to speak, cheaper, then you've not only got to engage in market timing, But you've also got to get two decisions right. The first is the selling decision. And the second is the buyback decision. If you want to spare yourself that agony, then you just let nature take its course, which means valuations will come down. But at the same time, the business continues to grow. And that's when you really need to have this very difficult approach, which is called the long-term attitude to investing. Very difficult. Indeed. And I think the mature way to think about it, I think, is that, you know, you're very happy to take the gains in the good times, but you can't extrapolate that they're going to continue. And if you've been lucky enough to do that, there is an argument, perhaps, if you've got a some kind of balanced portfolio, you could trim the holdings a little bit uh, just on a kind of mechanical basis. That might be uh, one way to deal with this. But I want to move on from that because clearly, I mean, I'm not worried about the future of your funds or your uh, the companies you're investing because they are very good businesses and good businesses will come through in the end. Uh, I think there was a very good comment the other day from uh, one of the fund managers who invests in a similar style to you, 
who is referencing back to uh, Charlie Munger and the fact that if you have a a 15% return on capital or 15% return on equity, to be more precise, which in your case is often very similar because they have very little debt, that is the kind of return you will get over time from those investments. It will approximate to that over the longer term. So if your companies are making a 15% return on equity, then over the passage of time, we're talking, you know, 10, 20 years, that's the kind of level of return you will get, which is not the case for any of the cyclical businesses that you've been talking about. So I don't have any worries about your companies. But I think what is interesting is that there has been this kind of disparity in divergence, huge divergence in the performance of different uh, parts of the market, as you've correctly observed. You know, technology seems to, and the kind of early stage companies seems to be going into meltdown, which is not at all surprising. But meanwhile, some other areas of the market are doing very well. So if you look at a kind of ETF that tracks, uh, you know, high dividend yield stocks, those with a, a good value uh, discipline, they're also doing quite well. And the UK market, of course, with its exposure to, you know, its old dinosaur companies in the, in the old sector and, uh, and mining and so on, is also doing very well in relative terms. But what is difficult, I think, for most investors at the moment is that the traditional 60-40 portfolio of equities and bonds has been absolutely hammered because both of them have gone down in in value at the same time. And that is not something that historically people have uh, assumed will happen. So do you still think that there is a risk that we may be going back through a combination of inflation and possibly policy mistakes and slowing growth to a kind of rerun of the 1970s, where essentially you wanted to be invested in things like commodities, you wanted to be invested in, to some extent, in property and things like that, because they were real assets. There weren't many things that performed well during that period. Do you think those analogies with that period are overdone, as many people do? One can only answer that question if one has access to proper data. For example, if you dissect the inflation picture of the 70s, where did it come from? Was it demand-driven? Was it cost-driven? Was monetary policy appropriate compared with today and all that? The problem is that it's difficult to find data. I think, nonetheless, this is such an important question that you've posed. It's the most important question. And if we see a resurgence in protectionism, in deglobalization, but accompanied by protectionism in various forms... Remember, at the time, we had very steep protectionism on all fronts, whether it was trade, whether it was capital movement, or whether it was foreign exchange movements. You had limitations everywhere. You remember that. It was only later that the single market and free trade, EFTA, GATT and all that, that took years. This was all before before GATT, before EFTA, before the single market in Europe, and so on and so forth, and, and before the Chinese, of course. And you had a cartel of oil producers who really ruled the world. Do you remember when they quadrupled the price of oil on the 1st of October 1973? What damage that did. I think that since you asked me a straight question, I'm going to give you a straight answer. No, I don't think we're going back to the 70s because we're way beyond that. And um, I think that sooner or later, we're going to get a normalization again. And so it's a resounding no to your question. Good. Well, I was hoping you'd say that because actually, I rather agree with you on that. <laughs> I don't think we are going back. It's a very different world, as you say, for so many, many reasons. 
However, uh, it does look like still to me, though, that we are entering into a new phase in the investment world, which is something that not many investors have experienced before. In other words, we know we've been living through this period where we've had, uh, you know, we've had two really bad bear markets in the last 20 years. But those have been generated against a background of falling bond yields, uh, you know, a steady trend over many years and a period of independent central banks and uh, this whole process of globalization. So it has been, a, you know, a particularly golden period in a way, notwithstanding the volatility in the world in that. Uh, I just can't see myself that we are going to go back to that world. We'll be going to a different world. It won't be the 1970s, but it's not going to be as happy a world, perhaps, as it has been for the last um, 20 years, notwithstanding the, the two crises that we've had in that period. Uh, would you agree with that or not? I mean, I think what I'm trying to say is that I think, you know, people who are just relying on what's happened in the last 20 years are going to be disappointed if they continue to rely on the kind of buy the dip mentality that's been there for that period. You know, it's a new world where we're into for a number of reasons, because some of the trends we've seen, you know, like, uh, as you say, deglobalization, change in supply chain management and so on, they're not going to reverse anytime soon. It's clear that the inflationary outlook is going to remain uh, problematic for at least a couple of years, I would say. And we have not yet seen, you know, how politicians and central bankers are going to manage through this particular period. I hope they're going to manage successfully. But uh, it's going to involve some very tough decisions, which they may well get wrong. So I have to say, I'm kind of still fairly nervous about the outlook for the overall level of investment returns in the next few years. Uh, because I think we are entering a new world. But within that, there will be great opportunities, of course. There always are. And, um, you know, we can all uh, debate where those opportunities will, will best be. But it feels to me very much, looking back over the history of our lifetimes, that we are entering a new phase anyway. I won't go much further than that. Yes, it's it's inevitable that we're going to a new phase. One of the questions about this new phase, I think, is whether central bankers, you referred to central bankers this morning a few times, whether they are actually the solution that we are looking for, or whether the nature of the inflation problem that we've got today is such that it can't be overcome by monetary policies. I mean, do we really have a situation today where you have too much money chasing too few goods? Or is that very expression, an antiquated expression, which existed during the pre-knowledge-based economy of today. And I don't think, I'm, I'm trying to answer that question, I don't think it is a question of too much money chasing too few goods. I think it's a question of the cost push inflation, which comes from the blockage, which you referred to. All you have to do is look at the pictures every day of Chinese ports and uh, North American ports that are completely inundated by containers that are stuck and so on and so forth. I don't see how monetary policy can unstick frozen containers at ports. I don't see that. So you might conclude that if you have inflation of 8% and interest rates at 2% or 3% or in the UK even less and in Europe even less than that, then you've got to adjust interest rates. It's the very least that you've got to do. I am not that sure that it would have if you like, a positive effect on the forces of inflation today, whilst at the same time having a pretty negative effect on stock markets. So to come back to your question that you posed, I think that the central bankers today 
uh, irrespective of or contrary to what you read in the papers, I wonder whether they're actually not more dangerous to financial markets. And they're actually not the solution to financial markets. The solution has to be found elsewhere. And the central bankers should be very quiet and let nature take its course without being too aggressive on interest rates. Yes, well, that's to be interesting to see. I mean, we'll find that out, I think, over the next few months. I mean, I rather worry only that because they've come in for so much criticism, they're only human beings after all. Uh, and institutions also have, you know, kind of reputations that they they kind of feel obliged to defend. You know, I share your concerns that they may be uh, overzealous in what they do in response to this crisis that we're facing. And as a result, uh, create uh, perhaps more problems than uh, they would otherwise do. I just wanted to ask you finally, Peter, because I think we've reached our time limit here. You know, we've come to some tentative conclusions, but we haven't come to some firm conclusions. And I'm thinking of this in terms of two countries, really, and thinking in terms of the UK, and I'm thinking in terms of Germany, where, you know, there's going to be huge political ramifications of all this. That We're already seeing that in those two countries, my country and, and Germany in particular, where its whole kind of recent... Uh, industrial and strategic policy seems to be uh, under threat, shall we say, from what's happening. We come back to the Ukraine war having crystallized that issue, if you like. What's going to happen in these countries? I mean, we may get very different kinds of governments and we may get very different kinds of policies that also make things worse rather than better. I mean, that is one of my concerns. Is that one that you might share? I share it very much and I totally agree with you. And the German government of the past 10 years has been really going to the completely the wrong direction. They're completely in the throes of and dependent on not only Russia, but also China to an even greater extent. And um, that was in part because, I mean, it's very difficult to say why Mrs. Merkel, it's really very much Mrs. Merkel's fault because she set the trajectory uh, going into this direction and she should have known better, but she didn't. She also, by the way, made the colossal failure of switching off the nuclear-powered stations after the Japanese debacle, Fukushima, I think it's called. And that was an enormous mistake. And they're paying the price big time today because they're so dependent on, on the Russians from an energy point of view and so dependent on the Chinese from a trade point of view. And what's even worse is that the new government, especially the new chancellor, is a very weak man. He's much more left-leaning than one would think. If you look at his past, he had the red carpet treatment every time he crossed the checkpoint Charlie border into the DDR and was given special treatment, which makes you think along certain lines, which one probably th shouldn't think along. But the result is that you've got a weak government in a, at a very critical juncture, instead of being a strong government in the center of Europe, uh, taking the lead, what you haven't got is that. But just to finish, um, you've seen how many new countries in Europe are urging the European Union to fast track them into the EU. And you've also seen a major development, which is Sweden and Finland wanting to go into NATO and the rather irritating Turkish reaction, and so on and so forth. So I think the bottom line is that, well, certainly as far as Europe is concerned, which is on the doorstep of this war, Europe has been strengthened by this and will go, in my opinion, kicking and screaming from strength to strength in the years ahead. 
Well, Peter, I know that's a particular passionate uh, interest of yours, and I'm sure that uh, we'll all hope that, that comes about. Just a final point, really. I mean, it is worrying that, you know, the Ukraine war, I think, is going to drag on for quite a long time, and it will be a major reconstruction needed, even if uh, by some miracle it comes to an end sooner rather than later. Uh, that will take some of the pressures off, but it won't resolve all these issues because even if we have a ceasefire in uh, Ukraine or even a negotiated settlement in Ukraine, we still don't know the impact on food prices on, or wheat exports on what's going to happen to the Russians. How will they be treated? Will they actually be able to sell their oil and gas anymore uh, after that? I mean, those issues aren't going to go away anytime soon. So I think that is a specific dark cloud hanging over us that is not going to go away. Uh, even if some of the other things that we've talked about, you know, do start to get resolved as the as the markets seem to be implying. So I think it's still a very uncertain picture and I, and I wish it were not so. But uh, next time we convene to have this conversation, uh, let's hope that there is better news around. Let us hope, Sir Jonathan. Thank you very much. Very interesting as always. And see you next time. Looking forward to that. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.